Ashley leaned over to me and said, you need to save your voice. She said that because, man, I love that song. I've been bringing out the inner charismatic in me just about. But it's, I resist those urges. But, uh, man, it's a great song. So I have a confession to make. I'm going to start off the sermon, maybe not like a normal sermon you'd start off, but I have a confession to make. I have very mixed feelings about Christmas time. Uh, Al laughs. Probably feels the same way. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's nothing that I'd rather do than celebrate the first coming of our Lord. But I, I really don't like all the excess and the chaos that we've introduced to the holiday. We, as New Testament Christians, have an obligation to observe only one holiday, and that is the weekly gathering of the believers on the Lord's Day. It's the only one that we are told specifically to observe, and that we are supposed to observe. But then try to explain to a fellow Christian that you choose not to place an emphasis on this particular season, and you're probably going to get some sort of funny looks, at least from the majority of, of Christendom, especially in America. I also find it uh, ironic that this time that we set aside to think about the coming of the Prince of Peace and to recite about angels singing about peace on earth is the very same season that's the most hectic and stressful, which is the opposite of peace. I find that a little bit ironic. And these, among some other reasons that I won't provide, unless you start looking at me with even more disdain than you might already be, kind of leads me to be very, at least indifferent to many aspects about the modern ways that we celebrate Christmas. There are parts that I really like, but there's some parts that I really don't like. All that to say, I can be a bit of, as my wife likes to term it, a Christmas curmudgeon. But I absolutely cannot read through a passage like the one that we have before us today without getting absolutely jacked thinking about Jesus and who he is. So even being a Christian's, Christian's Christmas curmudgeon, you read through Luke chapter 1 and the portion that we're going to read through today gets me really excited about Christmas. So turn there with me. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 26 through 38. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, 26, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what Luke writes. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you acknowledging your majesty and graciousness and mercy towards your people and choosing us for salvation. We are left in awe. We are left in awe of many things about your character. As we've already discovered some of those things this morning and considered them. How you are perfectly one, but yet three. Let us consider these things today, Lord. Let us marvel at all the wonderful things that you have brought about and who you are. Let us consider Jesus this morning. Let us consider who he is. Let us look to him for our salvation. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit in illuminating these things to our hearts and applying them to our lives. Let us live lives of holiness and sanctification dedicated to you in service to you and in service to each other. We pray for your blessings upon your people during this time, most of all that you're glorified in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so how last week, rightfully, I think, put forth a grievance during his sermon. He did it in jest, but a grievance at least. Last Sunday afternoon, he, he uh, mentioned that the passage that he was given by Pastor Thomas during this Advent season was about John the Baptist and did not have any Jesus in it. And I can understand that grievance. How? You did a good job with it, though. Well, I actually I have the opposite problem here. There is so much Jesus, there is so much about him that I have had trouble picking what direction to take the sermon because there is a lot here. So, I chose not to pick one particular direction at all. <laughs> That's why I titled this sermon, Treasures from the King, because this passage is filled with so many diamonds, jewels, and gold nuggets, and hidden gems about who Jesus is, that I've chosen just to hit on all of them. I'm not going to cover all of them in depth, because we'd be here for four hours, so I'm going to leave you to go home and then study and consider all the things that I brought up today, that I've introduced. The first thing I'd like to do, let's summarize what's going on in the text, just briefly retell what we just read. In layman's terms, so we have God's messenger, the angel Gabriel. Gabriel comes, he gives a face-to-face -face message with a young virgin named Mary. Mary is, very understandably, shocked and troubled at his appearance. And then she, he gives her an absolutely incredible message. She is going to be the mother to the Son of God. And given her virginity, she's obviously very confused about this. How can this be? And Gabriel explains to her, the child will be born of the Spirit, for nothing is impossible with God. Mary believes and then responds with submission. So that's the Cliff Notes version of what we just read. I think it would be helpful for us to read the parallel passage to this account in Matthew and John. John doesn't give as many details. But let's read the parallel passages in Matthew and John just for us to keep in our minds as I bring some things out later on in the sermon. So Matthew chapter 1, if you turn over there, please. Matthew chapter 1, this is the parallel passage, which focuses a little more on Joseph than Mary. This is what it says in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, 
saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That will be an important clause later. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is also an important verse, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his speech, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's one parallel passage. Now over to Mark's gospel, I mean John's gospel, sorry. John's gospel. John chapter 1, we're going to read verse 1 through 5 and then skip down to verse 14. So John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is, that is a powerful verse. We'll continue on. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to refer to these passages interchange it intermittently throughout the sermon, so just keep those in your mind. Back to Luke 1, though. <clears throat> First of the jewels or the gems or the treasures. First thing I'd like to consider is notice, to notice about the birth is how beautifully Trinitarian it is. We've talked a lot about the Trinity already this morning and over the past few weeks in Sunday school. We're going to consider it a little bit again right now. Look how beautifully Trinitarian the birth of Jesus is. We obviously have the God the Son being the primary focus in the end of the account. But we also have the other two members present here too. Verse 32 calls him the Son of the Most High. Verse 35 calls him the Son of God. Both of these references to God the Father. Eternally begotten from God the Father is the Son. John 1.14 was more explicit, describing his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father. There we've got two persons of the Trinity. And then the Holy Spirit is present too. The Holy Spirit is present as the conceiving power, the inspiration for the birth. You got how beautifully Trinitarian this is, the birth of Jesus. Focus is on Jesus. God the Father, God the Spirit part of this process too for the coming salvation it's a trinitarian salvation that's the first gem the assumption of human nature was not only an act of the son the entire trinity is involved perfect harmony perfect unity just like eternity past that was briefly about the Trinity. So we've got one of the essential doctrines of, the, of Christianity in this passage in the Trinity that we've already considered this morning, Sunday school. But we also have another. We've got the virgin birth of Christ. And this doctrine has, has massive implications that we'll soon unpack. But just on its first reading, we see that this is one of the fulfillments of one of those over 300 prophecies that Pastor Thomas mentioned last week. 
Over 300 prophecies given about Jesus and so many very specific ones given about his, the situations regarding his birth. And this being an absolutely critical one that he was born of a virgin. Matthew's account that we just read quotes the prophecy that is found in Isaiah chapter 7 that the Savior would be born of a virgin. Pastor Thomas sometimes tells the story of a Bellhaven student that used to attend our church, and I will disclaim this was before I was part of the church. There was a Bellhaven student that attended the church for quite some time, but the church would not accept him into membership because he refused to affirm the virgin birth of Christ. He said he had no problem with anything else, but he refused to affirm the virgin birth of Christ, and so our church would not accept him into membership. And the response from the church is absolutely correct for doing so. You cannot be a Christian while refusing to affirm the virgin birth of Christ. Why is this? It's because the one who is needed to save humanity had to be completely sinless. He had to be a perfect sacrifice. And in order to be a perfect sacrifice, the capacity for sin had to be completely absent from his nature. He had to be devoid of original sin. And this original sin is passed down through Adam. So if the Savior was passed on this ontological lineage of Adam, if he was passed this, it would be passed through having an earthly father that physically conceived him. The capacity for sin would then be present in his nature if he had a human father that conceived him. So he could never be the Savior. If he's not born of a virgin... He cannot be the Savior because he would no longer be a perfect sacrifice. He had to possess a divine nature, so he had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that after the Enlightenment and the start of the textual criticism of the Bible, 1700s, this was the first thing that they started to attack was the virgin birth. It's also interesting that modern liberalism in the American church started its most explosive expansion in this very place too, on this very doctrine. This is where they started, with the virgin birth of Christ. In May of 1922, the man who had become the most prominent liberal Christian communicator preached the sermon that began to define him, May 1922. His name was Harry Emerson Fosdick, and he preached the sermon at the First Presbyterian Church at New York City, Title: Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And by fundamentalists, he, mean, he meant those who hold to historic Christian doctrines. Things like the virgin birth of Christ. He attacked many, many aspects of historical Christianity in this sermon and all of his later works. But the two that he really set his sights on most in this sermon were the virgin birth of Christ and the inerrancy of Scripture. And so... Whenever you elevate human reason above the authority of Scripture, the game has been lost. It's completely lost. You have no foundation to stand on whenever you elevate human reason above the words of Scripture. Human reason, quotation marks. God and His Word are the primary sources of knowledge, not us. And after this sermon, the richest man in the history of the world, relatively speaking, John D. Rockefeller... He loved this sermon so much that he had 130,000 copies personally paid for and printed, and he mailed them to every Protestant preacher in the United States. Thus, the, what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy was born, 
And this sermon and the out, outflow from it was what led the great theologian J. Gresham Machen to write his classic book, Christianity and Liberalism. The modernists, who are not us, by the way, we're the, the fundamentalists, is what they would call us, the modernists claimed that their way was the only way that would keep the church relevant in the modern world. But man, were they wrong. If you look at the state of the mainline Protestant churches now, it's not good. It's not good in terms of attendance. It's not good in terms of worship. It's not good in terms of really anything that's going on in them. But they claimed we had to use our reason to keep the church relevant in the modern world. And they, were, they were wrong, completely wrong. History has proven so. God's word proves them so, even more importantly. It's also inter interesting to me that they claim the impossibility of the virgin birth before they go to the resurrection. It might just be me, but to me, a dead man raising himself from the dead and then never dying again and ascending physically into heaven is much more incredible than a virgin giving birth. And then Paul goes on and says that if the resurrection isn't true, then our whole faith is completely meaningless. We are to be most pitied. So I don't, I don't get why, why they would attack that, because the resurrection, to me, sounds more incredible than a virgin giving birth. So how can these two seemingly impossible things be? A virgin birth, a virgin giving birth, and a dead man rising from the dead to never die again. Well, Luke tells us, he tells us, he tells us in what we've already read, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So that was a bit of a tangent. Back from that tangent, the point that I was making was that the Savior had to be the God-man. He had to possess a divine nature. The sin could not be transferred to him. And in order to possess a divine nature, he had to be born of the Holy Spirit. But also, in order to bridge that gap between God and man, in order to be the mediator that we need, he also had to possess a human nature. And that's where Mary comes in. Mary, in being chosen to carry our Lord in her womb, was obviously, as her cousin Elizabeth would later declare, blessed among women. Gabriel first addresses her as, O favored one. Whenever he first appears, that's what he says. Greetings, O favored one. This phrase of a favorite one could be translated, one to whom grace has been bestowed. Greetings, O one to whom grace has been bestowed. In Genesis chapter 3, God promises to send the great serpent crusher to destroy the works of Satan, and he promises that this man would be an offspring of Eve. He would come from the woman. We get many indications in Scripture that Eve thought that she herself would physically bear this offspring. Uh, a primary example would be the naming of her son Seth, which means cho chosen or appointed. But it wasn't Eve that was chosen by God to bear the ultimate appointed or anointed one. That privilege given to Mary some 4,000 years later than Eve. And Mary was privileged. She was. Elizabeth indeed called her blessed among women. Gabriel calls her a favored one. But this leads me to caution against another heresy, one that I, I would hope that we would not fall into, but I will caution against it anyway, the one that is promoted very aggressively by the Roman Catholic Church, which is the divinity of Mary. 
may not know that, but they do see Mary as a divine being. Sometime during the Middle Ages, the church began to see Jesus as inaccessible. Why? But they saw him as inaccessible. He was too highly exalted and too, too, too high to be approached by humans. He was not approachable by us anymore. How they devolved into this, I, I didn't research that far. But they believed that Jesus could not be approached directly by us. First of all, that is completely wrong. So they believe they should pray instead to their concept of saints. Mary being the chief among the saints. They believe that their prayers offered to the saints are then communicated to Jesus in heaven. But with Mary, they take it even further than all the other saints. They believe that Mary stayed a virgin forever. This is strange, considering Jesus had brothers. They believe that she stayed a virgin forever. They believe Mary never sinned and never even possessed original sin. They believe that Mary was assumed into heaven and never died, just like Jesus. They worship her and they see her as a mediator that is able to make intercession for sins. I'm not making this up. You can go to the Roman Catholic catechisms and these are answers to their catechism questions. And these beliefs, I'm going to use a strong word here, but they are evil. They are evil and they are incredibly offensive to Jesus and the work that he has accomplished. Hebrews tells us that there is but one mediator between God and man and that mediator is Jesus Christ. No one else. Not the Pope. Not any saints. Not Mary, Jesus, and Jesus alone. That's it. So you may ask, what portions of Scripture the papists use to justify these heretical doctrines? And the answer is, nowhere in Scripture are any of these ideas supported. And it is here that we realize that the root of the problem is exactly the same root as the problem with liberal Christianity that we just described before them. Is that the Bible is not enough for them. The Bible is not enough for either group. The liberals say the Bible plus human reason. But in effect, they elevate human reason above the Bible. The papists then say the Bible plus church tradition. But in effect, they elevate the false teachings of the church above the Bible. We say sola scriptura. The Bible alone. The Bible alone is enough. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is everything we need. Not our own reason, although our reason can be helpful. Not the traditions of the church, although those can be helpful. But the Bible alone is enough. Nowhere in the Bible will you see that Mary was anything other than an ordinary woman that was blessed. She was blessed to carry the Lord in her womb, and she signified the Lord's human nature. As I've already stated, his divine nature was necessary to satisfy the perfect sacrifice element of salvation, but his human nature was necessary to be a representative for all of humanity. These two things are absolutely necessary, the divine nature and the human nature. So the human nature was necessary for the human representation part. But also, without his human nature, the Bible could offer us no comfort in our trials and sufferings. If you would say Jesus suffered... If you can affirm that, but then go on and say, well, he only suffered, and he could do that. He could suffer all things because he was divine. You're forgetting about the element of his human nature that makes his relation to us so important here. 
For it's in his human nature that he had to live a holy life. It's in his human nature that he had to grow in the knowledge of his father by studying the scriptures. It's in his human nature that he experienced pain and suffering and tasted human sorrow. This is why, as Hebrew says, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's why he's able to give us strength during our sufferings. It's because he experienced suffering in ways that we cannot imagine, and he experienced this as a human. Jesus is not merely some great teacher. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man, two natures possessed by one person. A theological term for this is the hypostatic union. This is not Sunday school, so I will not attempt to (laughs) explain the hypostatic union to you. Um, I'm going to leave that to Richard in a future Sunday school lesson. Richard's not here, but if Richard's watching on the live stream, Richard, hypostatic union. But just to give a formal definition, the hypostatic union is the mysterious joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. The word hypostatic is found in a few places in the New Testament, but the most beautiful is in Hebrews 1.3, where it says... He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What a beautiful verse. I'm going to read it again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This verse emphasizes the oneness of God. Jesus is the exact same essence or nature of the Father, but he is distinct in person. And his person is made up of two natures, divine and human. And is this not amazing? I I cannot fully explain it. But I know what, it fills me with awe to marvel at the wonders of our great God. It should fill you with awe to consider these things. God himself, creator of all things, subsisting from eternity past, has condescended and assumed a human nature. The Lord of glory, born in the most humble of circumstances, dwelling among sinful humans, coming coming to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. Why? Why is this? It's because he loves his people. That's something that should captivate your attention, and that is something that should get you excited about Christmas. That's the part that I love. That should get you excited about Christmas. Not gifts, not food, not decorations, not trees, not Santa Claus, not any other silly earthly traditions that we might have. But that God is here. God is with us. Like I said, Matthew, Emmanuel, that is Christmas. That God is here. He's dwelling with us. So that was another, another jewel. The next set of jewels, the next set of gems I'd like to see in this passage. We're moving on to some, something completely different here. All the names that are ascribed to the one that is to be born. All the names are all the titles. He's called the Son of the Most High. A direct reference to the divinity that the child is going to possess. He is God, as John 1.1 also affirms. This verse also harkens back to Melchizedek's blessing upon Abraham in Genesis 4. Melchizedek is called the priest of God Most High. Jesus is called the son of, son of the Most High. We're going to return to this a little bit later. Gabriel also tells Mary that he will be called the Son of God. Another reference to his divinity 
and a reference to him being the second Adam because a few chapters later, Luke is also, whenever he's going through Jesus' genealogy, he says Jesus is the son of Joseph, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. He comes to Adam, who he calls the son of God. Obviously in a different respect than Jesus is referred to as the son of God. But Luke does describe him that way. So Luke is signaling here that Jesus is the second Adam. But where the first Adam failed and represents the head of all humanity, the second Adam succeeds in living a perfect sinless life to redeem those who have placed their faith in him. He represents all who will repent and believe, and he is the Savior of the world. Which brings us to the last name that is mentioned explicitly in this passage, Jesus. You might know this, but I'm going to say it again anyway. Jesus is the English translation of the Greek word eusus. Eusus which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. But if we translate Yeshua directly into Egypt, as we do in the, uh, directly, in the, directly into English, as we do in the Old Testament, we get the word Joshua. Okay. And the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. So all the other descriptions that we just said, they're titles. Son of the Most High, Son of God, but this is his name, and his name describes his purpose. He has come to fulfill the promised salvation of Yahweh. Yahweh saves. And one name that is curiously absent in this passage is the title Christ. In Luke's passage here, this specific passage in Luke. Luke chose to admit them in this passage, at least using that term directly. But Matthew didn't. Matthew, in his parallel passage to this, uses the term Christ what about that name? Well, Christ isn't as much of a name as it is a title. Pastor Thomas has already mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one. Like Pastor Thomas said, who is anointed in the Old Testament? Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed in the Old Testament. It shows that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the final fulfillment of all the anointings. He's the fulfillment of those, and he's everything that the anointings were pointing towards. Another interesting little gem is how many of the great covenants are alluded to in this passage. So you've got the Trinity, which alludes to the covenant of eternal redemption. We've got reference to Jesus being the Son of God. The title Luke also gives to Adam, alluding to the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden. We've got the Melchizedek connection to Abraham, alluding to the Abrahamic covenant. The baby's name is going to be Jesus, or Yahweh saves. Yahweh was the name first, given, first revealed to Moses, alluding to the Mosaic covenant. And if you think I'm stretching, making all those connections, you might actually be a little bit right. I thought it was interesting, nevertheless. But there is no denying the last one. Look at the second half of verse 32 there in Luke 1. It says... And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I mentioned a lot of those other covenants. Might have been a stretch on some of those, but this one is explicit here. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I said that the title Christ was absent from Luke's account, and that's technically true, but not really the whole story here. Because in our, Old Test <clears throat> me. in our Old Testament reading, we read Psalm 132. And I'm going to ask you to turn back there with me today. And just to give you a warning, as is typical for myself, I'm going to be going to a lot of different places in Scripture. So get ready for Bible drill. 
Psalm 132, I say this psalm is completely about Jesus. It is. It's about David. It's a kingly psalm. It's a messianic psalm, but it's completely about Jesus. But I do want to point out just a few choice verses from this psalm. In verse 10, it says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Anointed, or the Hebrew word Messiah, or the Greek word for that, Christ. Then over in verse 17, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. There we go. Anointed again. Messiah. Christ. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, confirms that this very verse is speaking about Jesus. Because back over in Luke's gospel, in verses 67 through 70 of chapter 1, Zechariah says this. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That sounds a lot like what we just read in Psalm 132 and verse 17. A horn to sprout for David, a lamp for the anointed. This horn is the one that's going to bring salvation. This horn is a symbol for strength. And the strength of salvation is going to come from the king that reigns on David's throne. Then back to Psalm 132 in verse 11, it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. This, this verse is an explicit reference to the Davidic covenant. That sworn oath that it says there is the covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In this covenant, God promises that David will forever have a son to reign on his throne. Gabriel confirms to Mary that this baby to be born is the son of David. There's no more sons after this one. This is the son of David that is promised. This is the king that the house of Jacob has been waiting on. And even more, he's not only the king over the house of Jacob, he is the king whose kingdom has no end. Because his kingdom is not geographic, it's spiritual. It reaches to the ends of the earth. Luke confirms this again when recording in his second writing in the book of Acts. Peter preaches what might be the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And Peter says this in Acts chapter 2. I warned you. We've been moving around. Acts chapter 2 in verses 29 through 36. It says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. But this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that for you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter affirms that David knew that this was his descendant that God was talking about. 
Jesus is the king that is meant to rule the earth into all eternity. This is the major focus of the books of Acts and Luke, and indeed the entire New Testament. The message is, the king from eternity past has come to dwell among us and save us. Come, follow, and worship the king. That's the primary message of the New Testament. The king is here. He's come to save us. Come follow him. Come worship him. Come into the kingdom. Jesus is first pronounced king by non-Jews in Matthew 2.2, where the wise men come and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. All four gospel accounts specifically state that Pilate directly asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, It is as you say. But this king was not coronated with a crown made of gold and jewels. This king was coronated with a crown of thorns. This is how Luke describes the scene in Luke 23. In Luke 23, verses 32 through 38. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save, his, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, or the anointed. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. The people walked by mocking him, saying, what kind of king hangs on a cross? I'm going to tell you what kind. The kind who is willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for his subjects. He was flogged, he was mocked, he was crucified. He incurred the total and complete wrath of God on behalf of you and me. But this king... This king that was crucified, this king was not bound by nature's laws. The grave could not hold him. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then he ascended and he sits eternally on David's throne in the heavens. And one day he is returning, scepter in hand, will all, when all will bow to him. They will all bow to him either in submission and reverence or in judgment and terror. It's coming. But all will declare whether in submission or reverence or whether in judgment and terror, that this is the King of kings and this is the Lord of lords. So how then do we live? How then do we live here? There are two groups that need to be addressed based on this. Those that are outside of the kingdom and then those that are within the kingdom. First, to those that are outside of the kingdom. Why do you continue to dwell in the slums of spiritual poverty when such riches have been offered to you? Why are you happy with meager portions of filth when you have been invited to come to the table of the one who has promised a feast of food and drink that will leave you eternally satisfied? Why do you continue to reject 
Christ the King and His offer of free grace. It doesn't have to be this way. Today is the offer. The day is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins, place your faith in Him, and be welcomed into the kingdom. The kingdom is a great place. Come and follow King Jesus. This is the message that we have to proclaim as New Testament Christians. Come and follow the King. The King is here. The kingdom is great. And to those who are in the kingdom, I love each and every one of you. I really do. What a family. But how do we live? How do we live when we ponder the great thing of, things of God? How do we live in light of the works of the Savior? How do we live as members of the kingdom? Well, Mary provides an excellent example here. Mary provides an excellent example. How does she respond to her blessing? This obvious blessing has been pronounced upon her. First, she responds in disbelief. How can this be so since I'm a virgin? And then she believes in what Gabriel has told her. But how does she respond that she's going to be the mother of the Savior? She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. The word there, servant, the same word as slave. We're slaves. We're bound to Christ. We're humans that were made to work. So we're here to labor for the kingdom and to serve the king as servants and as slaves. The Christian life is not a life of kicking back and taking it easy until God calls you home. It's not the way God has pronounced it. It's a life of service. It's also a life of worship. Mary displays that too especially during her song that's going to occur a few verses later. Prashant's not sitting here, but I'm not going to steal any of his, his thunder because he's got the Magnificat next week. have to come back. A cliffhanger for you next week. Come back and hear about the worship that Mary offers. Now I wanted to leave us today considering not just the Lord's first advent, but also the second. The second advent. The final fulfillment of the kingdom when the kingdom is really made real. Revelation 20. Last one. Revelation 20, verse 11, and then 21, 1 through 4. Remember, this is John again. We started off kind of with John in 1 1. John 1 1. And now we're ending with John, too. So, Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great, a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. So we got an allusion to the kingdom becoming really to its fullest fulfillment here. The king on his throne, the throne of David. I'm going to read it again. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Then skip down to chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So while we rightly marvel at the thought of God becoming man, 
We should also be filled with awe and joy when we consider His second coming, because that's what we've got to look forward to. That's our future. He will dwell with us. The dwelling that John described in chapter 1, remember John 1, 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us? That dwelling comes to this perfect, glorious, beautiful, everlasting fulfillment at the end of John's last writing that we just read here. God dwelling in perfect unity with man. The kingdom has come and has come fully and it has come completely. So I want you to think about this as we sing our closing hymn today. This one was chosen on purpose. Joy to the World is one of the great hymns of the church for very good reason. It's a fantastic collaboration between who might be the greatest hymn writer in the history of the church in Isaac Watts and one of the greatest composers of classical music ever, George Frederick Ondel. You might not know this, but Watts never intended this to be a Christmas song. It's loosely based on Psalm 98, but it's a song that's really meant to celebrate Jesus' second coming. Just look at the lyrics. The curse is gone. The earth produces thorns no more. Sins and sorrows are gone. That describes the scene that we just read in Revelation. And look at the major focus of Christ's kingship in the hymn. Let earth receive her king. The Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. So think about this as we sing this song now. Marvel at the coming of the Savior, but at the same time pray for Him to come again. We look forward to that day when the dwelling will be made complete. We look forward to that day when we can fully enjoy the treasures of the King. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we praise you. We thank you for allowing us to consider the marvels of your nature. We thank you for allowing us to consider the great things that you have done for your people. We are thankful that our King reigns on his throne right now. Lord, let us consider during this season not these things that distract but let us focus on Jesus. Let us focus on the work that he came to accomplish and how that applied to our lives. Let us pray for his second coming. Let us look forward to that day when the kingdom is made full and complete. When you dwell with us in perfect unity. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. For his conception of our Lord thankful for the ministry of Him to comfort us, to convict us, to sanctify us. And Lord, we thank You for Jesus. We're thankful for His salvation. We're thankful for Him being made man. Lord, we love You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.